0: So 2 Peter chapter 1, and we're going to start here at verse 16, where it says, For we have not followed cunningly devised fables, when we made known unto you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For he received from God the Father honor and glory, when there came such a voice to him from the excellent glory, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. And this voice, which came from heaven, we heard when we were with him in the holy mount. We have also a more sure word of prophecy, whereunto ye do well that ye take heed, as unto a light that shineth in a dark place, until the day dawn and the day star arise in your hearts. Knowing this first, that no prophecy of the scripture is of any private interpretation, for the prophecy came not in old time by the will of man, But holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. So far, let us pray before we take the word. Holy God, we come before you. These are your words. Lord, may you speak through them to each one of us. We pray that you would give us faith to believe, to hold fast to this, to find our hope and our refuge in everything you have spoken as you have revealed yourself and have um, spoken words that tell us who we are, who you are, what the gospel is, and how to understand all the questions of life. In Jesus' name, amen. This morning I have three points that I want to draw out of the text, and we're dealing with verses 20 and 21. And the words, uh, the three points, sorry, are these. The word not self-contrived. Number two, the word not self-inclined. Number three, the word spirit-designed. So the word not self-contrived, the word not self-inclined, and the word spirit-designed. So those are the three points. And so first of all, the word not self-contrived. We have to remember where we've been in this text, and it really starts here at verse 16, where Peter is answering the charge that is simply this from false teachers saying, you've made it up, it's not biblical, that Christ is coming again. And so it's all about the second coming of Christ. Peter takes the charge, says, hey, I'm not making this, we are not making this up, we're not following cunningly devised fables. And then he brings in the transfiguration as A case in point that Christ is coming again because at the Mount of Transfiguration, the glory of the returning Christ was seen ahead of time. It's called prolepsis, so ahead of time for the glory that would come. And then from there in verse um, 18 and 19, we see that the word of prophecy, the scriptures, are made more firm or solidified in the very fact of the Mount of Transfiguration. And in that event, so we better be certain, Jesus is coming again in glory to judge the living and the dead. And so from there, Peter now takes this concept of the coming Christ, the day star, Jesus Christ, that will come, into verse 20. And he just dials back for a second. And notice the words, knowing this first. Knowing this first, because verse 19 um in the middle there, I didn't mention that, says, "Whereunto you do well that you take heed, and that is the word. So if we're going to listen to the word, we better know what the word is, and that the entire message today is about what the word is. So, knowing this first, the per- first... Principle. Now, Peter is here not giving new information to these Christians as though they didn't know the primacy of Scripture. He's rather reminding them, which is an important point. We need to remind each other of the primacy and the supremacy of Scripture, the foundational principle of what is the Word of God. Because we have Bibles in front of us. We're holding them. Many of us have many Bibles in our homes, and they're only read... And understood according to what you believe about them. You ever thought of that? When I read the Bible, I am only going to receive what I believe about the Bible. John Owen, the Puritan, he writes this about this first principle. In other words, he says, This is a principle to be owned and acknowledged by everyone that wants to believe anything else. So if you want to believe anything in the word, you first have to believe what you believe about the word. And then from there, he says that no prophecy of the scripture. Again, we're not talking here about other prophecies. We're talking about the prophetic word, this narrow, authenticated, received, recorded, and recognized word of God as it has been delivered to us from there he says is of private is of any private interpretation now here's where it gets confusing because there's been two main interpretations or understandings of this word interpretation or private interpretation what exactly is Peter getting at um, some translations just nail it in which way they take so your translation may not even identify the options here but here's the two options that are Completely valid from the Greek, and um, commentators will land on both sides. The first interpretation is this. The prophetic word is not to be interpreted privately, which means when you and I read it, we shouldn't do it according to our own fancies, according to what I want to read in the Bible, like the false teachers did. That's one view. The other view is this. The prophetic word did not come into being of one's own interpretation so that the false teachers cannot dismiss it as being made up when it was given. So the one is about how you and I receive it and interpret it. The other one is about how the prophets interpreted the visions and the dreams that they had, the revelations. Okay, So those are the two sides, just so you get them. So which one is it? Well, first of all, the noun to interpret here is epileusis in the Greek, which means to unloosen. Literally, epi and luso is to loose. And so, if you think about, to unloose something is to release it, to explain it, to expound on it, to interpret it. Jesus, um, it says in Mark 4, in the verb form, it says, when he was speaking in parables, it says, but without a parable he spoke not unto them, and when they were alone, the disciples, it says, he expounded, same word, all things to his disciples. And so Jesus is unloosing or explaining what the parables actually mean. Also in the Old Testament, in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, when Joseph interprets the dreams of Pharaoh, the same word is used. Now there again, you have dreams, so revelations, that are being unloosed by Joseph to Pharaoh. So that's the, kind of the range of that word. There's more examples I could give So, first of all, on those who take the view that what this text means is that we should not interpret the Bible according to our own private interpretations, they will argue it this way. They say that since Peter has just defended the apostolic interpretation, so that of Peter, James, John, and the apostles, therefore, it seems logical That the first principle, knowing this first, for you and me is, that we should not make up our own interpretations, but we should follow the apostolic interpretations. So don't make up your own, don't be private, don't make your own little thing, follow the apostolic interpretation. That does seem like a logical way to look at this text. Probably the strongest evidence for that view would be at the end of this book, if you flip your page over to chapter 3, verse 16, where it says, Referring to the apostle Paul's writings. And notice what it says about Paul's writing. Peter says in verse 16. As also in all his Paul's epistles. Speaking in them of these things. In which are some things hard to be understood. So it's talking about understanding Paul's letters. But look what he says then. Which they that are unlearned and unstable rest or twist. As they do also other scriptures unto their own Destruction. So basically Peter is saying these teachers are twisting, misinterpreting the word of God. And that's the problem. That's why they come up with all their bad teachings. And so Peter in chapter 1 where we're at is basically saying don't be like them. Don't twist, don't rest the scriptures to your own private interpretation. That is a very cogent view. That's not the view I'm going to take this morning even though it has a lot going for it. But I did want to lay it out there because it is, like I said, a view that some commentators take. But the lion's share of commentators, all the way from Calvin through the 17th and 18th and into today, um, time, uh, centuries, are all taking this view. And it is the one that I think fits the context best. No prophecy of scriptures were of the prophets, them, own clever interpretations of the facts, the dreams, the visions, and the events that they had in front of them. They, the prophets, were not making this stuff up. They weren't just doing forecasts. They got the dream, and then they kind of forecasted their interpretations out of those dreams, those visions, and those revelations. That would be the view I would take, because against the false teachers, he's basically saying that the scriptures, the word of God, do not reflect Speculative contrivances, that's why I get the word contriving, making this up, of mere mortals. That means, if you think about this, that the prophet was both the recipient of the phenomenon, the vision and the dream, and the interpretation of the vision and dream. So both came from God. He got the message, and when he gave the message, that comes from God too. That's what it's saying. This means, if you think about what that means, that the prophet himself didn't necessarily even understand what he was saying because it came from God and came out of him as a mouthpiece to the people. And so that's why it even says in 1 Peter that the prophets saw diligently to understand when the Christ would come. They didn't even understand. And so that's what I believe it means. He was both a listener and in the same humble position as you and I patiently waiting and watching as God through redemptive history unfolds his word to us. And the reason that this will be what most commentators think is what it means is because of the next verse, which opens up with the word for. For is an explanatory conjunction, which means it's explaining or deepening what he's just said. And like I said, every commentator basically hinged on that and says, the only interpretation of this text that makes sense is the one I just gave to you because of the next verse. Also, to defend this interpretation, some commentators, I think, rightly pointed out, and it will not be clear in our English, but I think it's foundational to understand that when it says here, knowing this first, that no prophecy of Scripture, it's only one word, is. The the word there is, is ginomai which means became, as opposed to is, esten in the Greek. There's two different words that could be used here. Well, ginomine means originated or became. So he's speaking of the origination, the beginnings of the prophecy. And again, that's not too clear in our English versions, but it is clearer in the Greek. So all those reasons makes guys like John Calvin say this. The fact that the prophecy did not come from man is everything in question in this text. Matthew Poole, also a Puritan, would say this. The question is not this. Who has the authority to interpret the Bible? It's not about authority of interpretation that we now have, have, but the authority is in what about the authority of the penman to write it? And that is why we have to listen to the word because we have to understand where it came from and how it was transcribed to us. All of this means this. The very beginning or origin of the word of God requires for us humility, a weightiness, and a care when we handle the word, when we realize there was absolutely no human input into the words we have in front of us. It also means this. That when the scoffers... And false teachers misinterpret the Bible. That's not the only thing they're doing. They are actually also denying the very doctrine of the inspiration of the word of God. Because they are doing the one half. Something came from God. But the human side in its transcription must have gotten jumbled and messed up. And so they are affecting what we understand about the word of God. You spend one minute at a Christian bookstore or looking online at Christian books, and you will be exposed to all sorts of ideas, novel insights as to who God is, mankind, and meaning. And these are the prophets and the pundits who think they understand the words of God and are unloosing new revelations, new visions, new dreams for man. Bestsellers are often new prophetic words new revelations, new experiences, and they are duping the church. This, unfortunately, has also affected the Reformed world, including probably one of the best-selling systematic theologies. You can ask me afterward which one I'm referring to. Those holding to this view, these Reformed Christians, that in New Testament times, they say, that prophets maybe got revelations, New Testament prophets, get a revelation, which is is perfect, which is infallible, but then they say this, but the reporting of New Testament prophets may, here's to quote from the systematic theology, may have elements of the speaker's own understanding or interpretation in it, end quote. And thus it could be fallible. This verse says the opposite. God doesn't just give the revelation to the prophet and then leave it up to the prophet to interpret and report it accurately. There's no sense of a download to the prophet without a full and perfect transcription to the hearer and the reader. What the prophets saw and what they spoke was from God. There is no fallible prophecy in the word of God. Calvin says this. If you believe this, if you agreed with what was just said, he says that requires from you and me a just reverence. And it only exists when we are convinced that God has spoken to us and not mortal man speaking to us. Another implication from this teaching would be this, and it informs our doctrine of Scripture. Because the inspiration of scripture, as just explained, also impacts our doctrine of the preservation of scripture. John Owen, again quoting the Puritan here, says this about the scriptures. He says, God's mind was in the scriptures in such a way that they were incapable of being changed or altered down to the least iota or syllable. So by God's good and merciful, merciful providence, providential dispensation, in his love to his word and church, here's the preservation, his whole word at first given by him is preserved to us entire in the original languages. And we hold to that voraciously. The first principle then that we must remember is that the church, you and me, have the very word of God present in the copies, in our hands. We have a more sure word of prophecy. Second word. The word is not self-inclined. That is verse 21a. For the word, the prophecy came not in old time by the will of man. Again, I said four is an explanatory conjunction, but notice we get a negative explanation. In the second half, we get a positive explanation. So first of all, negatively, the prophecy came not negatively in old time. The word there, uh, when it says this, came not in old time, is very emphatic in the original languages. It means never at any time was the prophetic word merely human. That is why we can't change the system in the New Testament. Never, ever, old time, not with Abraham, not with Moses, not with David, not today, is the prophetic word ever of the will of man. And so John Owen again says this about the prophets. He says their rational ideas, their inquiries, their concepts, their conceptions, or their imaginations had no business in it. Human impulse was actually, with the human involved, was actually the mark of what? Of a false prophet. When it came from man, the Bible is clear. I never spoke. Listen to these, uh, these words. Jeremiah, Jeremiah 23, 21, God says this. I have not sent these prophets, and yet they ran. I have not spoken to them, yet they prophesied. There's human impulse bringing the word. Similarly, in Ezekiel 13, God says this. Thus saith the Lord, woe. Unto the foolish prophets that follow their own spirit, human will, and have seen nothing. They have seen vanity and lying divination, saying, The Lord saith, and the Lord hath not sent them. And they have made others to hope that they would confirm the word. Have ye not seen a vain vision, and have ye not spoken a lying divination? Whereas ye say, The Lord saith it. And God says, albeit I have not spoken. And so when there's human impulse involved, that's not from God. Because it originates from God. The impulse is from him. The inclination is from God alone. You think about this. What is the most common phrase in the Old Testament concerning the impulse of prophecy? What would it be? To men like Abraham, I looked it up, I put it in a search engine. To Abraham, Nathan, Gad, Solomon, Elijah, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Jonah, Haggai, Zechariah. You know what the impulse word is? The word of the Lord came. The word of the Lord came to them and they had no choice but to speak. So is there any indication anywhere in the Old Testament that these men at some point just decided to become prophets, just decided to speak. The ministry of a prophet was not popular. It was dangerous, and it was most of the time a word of judgment. Who would want to be a prophet in the Old Testament? Moses. Think about what Moses said when he was commissioned to go. Moses said unto the Lord, "Oh, my Lord, I am not eloquent, neither heretofore. Nor since thou hast spoken unto thy servant, but I am slow of speech and slow of tongue. And the Lord said to him, who hath made man's mouth? Or who maketh the dumb or the deaf or the seeing or the blind? Have not I the Lord? Now therefore, you know what God says? Go, and I will be thy mouth and teach thee what thou shalt say. You remember the sons of Korah that challenged Challenge the leadership and Moses it says in Numbers sixteen twenty eight says this hereby shall ye know that the Lord hath sent me to do all these works. And then he says this for I have not done them of my own mind. Jeremiah, think of what he said when he was commissioned. He says, Ah Lord, behold, I cannot speak, for I am a child. And so these men were impelled by a spirit that was mightier than themselves. David would say so much. Da- Peter knew his Bible. Because David says this in 2 Samuel 23.2. He says, the spirit of the Lord spoke by me. And his word was on my tongue. So what does this mean? It means that we should not be afraid to quote the authoritative word of God to our co-workers our friends and our neighbors instead we should eagerly spread the word of God into our communities because we have the authoritative word of God given to us and let us be heralded to the world be part of Bible printing and those groups that bring in Bibles around the world to the unreached nations. I recently heard about my aunt. She just came back from Peru and her and her husband were ministering up high in the Andes. And you know what they needed? Bibles. They needed Bibles. Let us bring the word, this authoritative word into the nations. Let us bring the word of God. Because if you believe what I just said, bring it to bear on your parenting. Don't parent according to your own whims. Bring it to bear in your marriages. Be unapologetic and courageous when we apply it to society, to issues of manhood and womanhood, to issues of sexuality and identity, who we are, and to questions of the sanctity of life life when it comes to euthanasia and abortion. Memorize this word because it has been given to us to store up in our hearts. So we can comfort and encourage one another. What other words can we speak? What other words can we speak that have such authority, such beauty, such wisdom, such truth, and such heavenliness? That's what it says in our confession the heavenliness of the matter. It's heavenly. This is from God. Which brings me to the final point the word spirit designed because it says in our text but holy men of God spoke now he gets to the positive side and he uses a very strong contrast of Allah in the Greek to contrast the men and their impulse to the spirit and he calls these prophets holy now think about this for a second holy prophets spoke why were they so holy Is it because they were so qualified, so moral, so distinguished as men? Think of Isaiah, who, reflecting on who he was, says this, Woe is unto me, for I am undone, because I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of an unclean uh, people of unclean lips, for mine eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Did Isaiah think he was a holy prophet? But even more, think of this prophet, Balaam. Remember him in Numbers? Twenty two and twenty-three? Was he a holy man? In fact, if you look at Second Peter, just a little bit further, chapter two, verse fifteen and sixteen, guess what it says? Look there. Which have forsaken the right way, false teachers, and have gone astray following the way of Balaam, the son of Bosar, who loved the wages of unrighteousness, but was rebuked for his iniquity, the dumbass speaking with man's voice, forbade the madness of the prophet. He was a prophet? The guy loved the wages of unrighteousness and he was yet lumped in with the prophetic word holy prophets of God spoke. So how do we understand that? How could these men be considered holy prophets? The holiness is not a reference to the prophet's righteousness. It cannot be. The holiness then is reflective and derivative of God who takes broken, sinful, unrighteous men takes them as a mouthpiece as an instrument and speaks his word through them and only in so far as they are communicating his word is their holiness As as soon as this prophet was done speaking the word of God he was reminded again that he is a mere sinful man in fact we know this because greedy Balaam sought the wages of unrighteousness. You know what he says in Numbers 22, verse 38, he says this, Lo, I am come to thee. Remember, he's the guy that didn't want to go until he got payoff. And then he says, Lo, I'm come to thee. Have I now any power at all to say anything? The word that God putteth in my mouth, that shall I speak. Talk about a conundrum, an unholy man speaking the very words of God. And so the last phrase, very important phrase, spoke as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. This word to be moved is probably the central word in the entire pericope, the entire section from verse 16 to 21 because it is the the word that grounds this whole section. It is actually used five times. But before I get there, Here's a question. Have you ever heard people say about the Bible that the Bible is the word of God only insofar as it contains what God has spoken? So it contains human words and man, God's words. So it contains the word of God, but is not necessarily 100% the word of God. I got that at college, in sem- or not seminary, when I was in college, they told me that. The Bible contains the word of God. That's not true. And that's why this word is so important. Pharaoh. Pharaoh. They were carried or moved or born by the Holy Ghost. Like I said, it's used five times. Look carefully. Verse 17 is our first instantiation of this word. For he received from God the Father honor and glory when there came. There's our first one. When there carried to him such a voice from the excellent glory. Verse 18. And this voice which came. Same word, from heaven, was carried from heaven, we heard. And now in verse 21, it actually gets used twice. It says, for the prophecy came or was carried in old time, not by the will of men, but holy men of God spoke as they were moved or carried, born by the Holy Ghost. You know, when the Apostle Paul, remember when he was a prisoner at sea? And they're on his way to Rome. He had appealed to Caesar, and he's going there, and he's in chains, and this massive storm hits. And remember that they're worried for their lives. And it says, when they had taken up and used all the helps they had, they undergirded the ship, and fearing lest they should drive into the quicksand. You know what they did? It says, they strike sail. They raised the sails up. And then the word is, and so were driven. It's the same word. And so were carried and borne by what? The wind, the boat was at the mercy of the wind. And in the same way, when the prophet was moved by the Holy Ghost, he was born and carried as God would have him to be moved. You ever heard of the concept of dictation theory? about the word of God. Dictation theory says this, that God robotically took these men and spoke to them robotically, that it doesn't account for the personalities, the environments, the talents, and the educations. There's no human element involved. Well, of course there's human element, because the prophets were all different. Some were priests, some were farmers, some were leaders, some were well-spoken, others were totally terrible in their speaking, but God spoke through each one of them. And so this word carried means that God took these various mouthpieces, and spoke uniquely through each personality, each person, and yet it's 100% from God. And so we don't hold to dictation theory. In fact, men like Abraham Kuyper and Herman Bavinck will say we should believe in what is called organic inspiration, as he speaks through these organic instantiations of men. B.B. Warfield would call it concursus, as God concurred with men in their beings. Calvin would say this, that the prophet dared not announce anything of their own and obediently followed the spirit as their guide who ruled in their mouth as his own sanctuary. What a view of scripture that God ruled their mouths as his own sanctuary. And thus we can affirm boldly that the Bible is so much more than containing the word of God. We believe That every stroke of the pen... Is the very word of God. How many people have accused the Bible... Of being full of blunders and errors... And contradictions and stuff like that. Historical blunders. If you believe everything I've said up to this point... Your answer will always have to be... Not so. Because it is inspired by God. And God cannot lie. So what God has revealed cannot be an untruth the problem must lie in me my interpretation my understanding my feebleness not in God Matthew Henry says that because it is the Holy Ghost who carried these men it means he effectively secured the Bible from any least mistake in expressing what they revealed the Holy Spirit think about it is part of the Godhead and again God will not make mistakes and therefore we must not trust Modern scientific theory, when it contradicts the Bible, but rather we must subject science to the Bible first, begin with God, then move to science. When we deal with questions of human psychology and human social sciences, and where they contradict the word of God, we must reject what they're teaching, because they contradict the very word of God. And where does this all leave us? it does leave us now with the question of interpretation. So remember those two views of this text? Well, once we believe that holy men of God spoke as they were carried through the Holy Ghost, that does affect interpretation because it's now you've got this belief of what you are handling. And the Bible calls us not to handle the word of God carelessly and recklessly. It's no longer than a matter of personal opinion. You can't go to a Bible study and say, well, I feel it means this to me or... It means this for me today. Because God spoke. You can't change it and subjectivize the very word of God. It's not a matter of personal opinion. Because scripture's source limits its interpretation. If you're going to read your Bible, if we're going to read our Bibles with benefit... We must approach it with a reverent attitude that God's mind is so much greater than ours. And you know what this all means? It means that the only infallible interpreter of the Word of God is who? God, the Holy Spirit. And what do we see as principles of interpretation in the Bible? We call them, I've got a book on my shelf, it's called Inspired Principles of Prophetic Interpretation. And this prophet, this, this, not prophet, this teacher... Takes the Bible and he looks how later portions of Scripture are interpreting older portions. And so the principles of interpretation are actually established in the very Word of God as the New Testament interprets the Old Testament. And that is why we get this adage, I believe it's from St. Augustine, who said, The Old Testament is the New Testament concealed, and the New Testament is the Old Testament revealed. That's inspired principles of prophetic interpretation for us. And so when we see the Bible commenting on itself, this is so important. When we see the quotations in the New Testament, when we see the allusions explained, or the types of the fulfillment, we learn these principles. And furthermore, the reformers recognized three vital Characteristics of interpretation, and we need to nail these down. They are these: the analogy of Scripture, analogia scripturae, which means that the interpretation of unclear passages—some the kind where you scratch your head and say, "I do not understand this passage at all"—the unclear must be interpreted by the clear. That's the first principle. The next one would be the analogy of faith, analogia fidei. And that means that the general sense of the meaning of the entire book, Scripture, is found in the clear passages. And you know what they mostly refer to here? Foundational creeds, i.e., often the Apostles' Creed. Your main faith about what this teaches is the analogy of faith. And then the analogy of Scripture takes the unclear ones to try to understand them. What it basically says to us is the Bible is a story. It has a script written by God. What begins in Revelation cannot be disconnected with what happens, or so what begins in Genesis cannot be disconnected from the Book of Revelation. And the last principle they would talk about is the scopus scripturae, the scope of Scripture. What's the scope of Scripture? What is the central message of Scripture? Do we have an inspired, Holy Spirit interpreted central point somewhere in the Bible? Someone asked you that. What's the central point of Scripture? What would you say? Jesus tells us when he rose from the dead, he said it on the road to Emmaus. And he said, these are the words which I spoke unto you while I was yet with you that all things must be fulfilled which were written in the law of Moses and in the prophets and in the Psalms. Those are the threefold division of the Old Testament. And then it says this in Luke. It says, Then opened he their understanding that they might understand the scriptures because they all speak concerning Jesus. To understand the scriptures means to see Jesus. Jesus on every page. Jesus as the lodestar, the center, the day star from on high. The scope of all of scripture is the glory of God in Jesus Christ. Creation relates to Christ because he made us Christ is the second Adam he is the ark that saves us from judgment he is the new temple he is the greater high priest his blood is better than that of bulls and of goats Jesus Christ is the savior that was typified in Joshua and so all these pictures point to him and therefore study your Bible looking for Jesus Christ perhaps you've come here this morning and you've come with doubts about your future doubts about your salvation maybe you have fears about the way the world is going fears about a health issue that concerns you you have worries because of what's going on in your family worries because of maybe financial difficulty perhaps you've come here because of a guilty conscience that you wonder and you worry about your future when you stand before the judgment seat of god why do we worry why do we have doubts why do we have fears what would you say Is it not because of the uncertainties and the changing parts of our lives? Things that move, things that are not known to us. Did you know the only certain, unchanging, invariable thing in our lives is in front of us this morning? This never changes. It'll never vary. It'll never disappoint. It'll always be the same. And so the inspiration of the word of God today means that you can have more confidence in everything that is written. Therefore, remember Christ is not an illusion. Forgiveness of sins is not a concept to be entertained. Hope is not a bubble that one day will be burst. Salvation not a sham christ's kingdom is not a fairy tale do you believe the word will you commit yourself to the word this morning i wanted to end with scripture so it would have the last word i'll leave you with this paul says for the scripture saith whosoever believeth on him shall not be ashamed for there is no difference between Jew and Greek for the same Lord over all is rich unto all that call upon him for whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved Amen Let us pray Father in heaven we come before you and we thank you for the word we thank you that you have spoken and that We possess the very word of God. And we can hold fast to the word of God. And I just pray that we would find all our hope in you. That we would see Jesus on every page. And that we would um, understand it more. And that we would uh, be able to encourage one another with these sure words of truth. In Jesus' name, amen.